friends, listeners, rock fans. We come not to bury the soft potato taco, but to praise it. It has been with us through times of hunger, times of drunkenness, times of not having much money. And today we gave it one last order and bid it adieu. What was your crime against this world? In a lifetime, extra stuffed and loaded with pain, suffering, and abysmal sadness. You were soft, like a pillow for my taste buds to rest on. You were spicy to remind me that there is indeed excitement in this life. You were a potato taco. (laughs) This is the most for tribute. You may have been overlooked by the flashy menu items like the Doritos Locos Taco, Chalupa, Crunchwrap Supreme. You may have been scoffed at for being the vegetarian option. Yet for those who sought you out, you were a treasure chest full of cheesy, spicy, potatoey goodness. The world didn't deserve you. And all that's left is the memory of our time together. Usually at 8.25 p.m. on a random Wednesday when I thought I had a big enough dinner, but I did not. Rest in peace, my soft potato taco. And now we'll have a moment of silence. Okay. <laughs> so, for the, the three of you who are listening, don't know what the hell we just did. Um, next week, this weekend, the, the weekend that this podcast is coming out, I believe, so like roughly around August 7th, 2020, uh, Taco Bell is retiring the spicy potato taco and all potato menu items because they're fucking morons. This is bullshit. So, welcome to this episode. I'm Leah. I'm Bethann. And this is She Will Rock You. So today, we're not just raging against Taco Bell. No. Well, let me start off with, I've been in a bit of a mood, and the soft potato taco being taken off the menu is just the tip of that iceberg. But I figured with this rage inside me, it was time to talk about Rage Against the Machine. Hell yeah. So this group... I just really believe like a character study can be done on the whole band. Like it is just fascinating. The interesting dichotomy that's there and the legacy and the musical acts that sprung forth from their influence is well unique. Let's just say this story is going to end with Limp Biscuit, unfortunately. What? Wait, what? <laughs> that's all you need to know Gosh. right now. Just know where this path will end. Okay, so these bros had a shorter career um, than most artists. Like, we're kind of used to covering artists that are, like, well into their 70s, and we usually can't cover everything. So I'm going to start with them as individuals first. Okay. Um, before they were raging, of course. So the first person we're going to walk through with 
is vocalist Zach De La Roca. Okay. Um, Zacharias Manuel De La Roca was born on January 12th, 1970. Thank you for licking my computer, Mia. I appreciate it. There's still some Taco Bell cheese on there, probably. That's probably what it is. I think it's because she loves me, but let's be honest. His father, Robert Beto De La Roca, was a Mexican-American artist, graphic artist, muralist, who was part of the Los Four, which I did some research on them. They were a Chicano art collective in like Southern California. And I guess they were really instrumental to making Chicano art mainstream in America. And they like were in, I forget the museum's name. I forgot to write it down, but they were in this museum and it was a huge deal. Like the fact that Mexican American Chicano art was in this museum. Mm -hmm. Um, He also helped reestablish the day of the dead celebrations in California in Los Angeles specifically. Yeah. Zach's grandpa, Beto's father, Isaac De La Roca Beltran was a Mexican revolutionist who fought in the Mexican Revolution. So that's that's point number one. If we can take that and pin it, okay, we're gonna like see this web being built of okay. how and why they channel what they channel. Um, when his parents divorced when he was six, his mother Olivia Lauren Carter took him to Irvine, where. She, Uh, She went to school and got a PhD in anthropology. Kind of cool. When in elementary school, he met the future bassist of Rage, Tim Comerford, later on. Uh, They would go to form a band called Juvenile Expression. That is the best first band name we've ever (laughs) heard on the show. I knew you'd like it. Look, this is a good time to remind you how much of a badass motherfuckers these guys were. Like, straight in middle school, because they were walking around in sixth grade, not giving a shit, while their kids were eating their Lunchables and playing dodgeball, and these bros are forming a band called Juvenile Expression. amazing. (laughs) Like, it is great. But you can, like, see, like, their personalities right away, just based off that band name. So, Juvenile Expression, I don't think it lasts very long, um, because in 1987, De La Roca goes and joins a straight-edge band called Hard Stance. That's not a good name. Well, not like straight expression. No, it's not as good as it. Um, do you know what straight edge is by any chance? No. Okay. That's right. Uh, so for those who don't know, straight edge, which is, was popular in the metal scene many moons ago when I was in the hardcore metal scene, still is from my understanding. Um, it's really more of like a philosophy, but a lot of like bands will subscribe to it. Um, but here's kind of the tenets, if you will, of straight edge. No alcohol. Okay. No recreational drugs. No promiscuous sex. And you would usually show your dedication to the way. This is the way. This is the way. This is the way. By getting an X tattooed somewhere. An X? An X. I may or may not know someone who has a giant X tattoo because they were straight edge. They are no longer straight edge, but they were Yeah, weren't. so what happens when you don't subscribe to that anymore <laughs> well <laughs> i'll have to ask him because they still have the tattoo <laughs> you need to get that covered up bro yeah <laughs> um but we're gonna pause de la roca's story here and move on to guitarist tom morello tom morello tom morello is a fantastic guitar player he is he's one of the best um he was born in harlem new york 
on May 30th, 1964. His parents were badasses. His mom, Mary Morello, was a school teacher and activist who founded Parents for Rock and Rap, an anti-censorship organization Hell yes. made of parents who supported free speech through rock and rap. I would join that. I don't have kids, but I would still join that yeah, anyway. Yeah, no, totally. Now, his father, Gethe Jiroge, was Kenya's first ambassador to United Nations and participated in Kenya's Mau Mau uprising. Um, I'm going to pull this next paragraph straight from Wiki because this dude's like ancestral tree is just insane. Um, Morello's paternal great uncle, Jomo Kenyatta, was the first elected president of Kenya. His aunt, Jemima Jakaka, was the first woman to serve in the legislature of Kenya. And his uncle, Jiroge Munga Mungai was a Kenyan cabinet minister, member of parliament, and was considered one of the founding fathers of modern Kenya. Dang. Yeah, and his parents met in August 1963 while attending a pro-democracy protest in Nairobi, Kenya. After discovering her pregnancy, Mary returned to United States with Droge in November and married in New York City. But it's like nuts. Yeah. That's nuts. Um, however, before Morello was even two, his dad went back to Kenya, pretty much disowned him. So we kind of remove his badass status. Like, you're cool. You did all those cool things, but then you like didn't care about your son anymore. So, so your, status, you. your status has been removed. Um, but his mom, still awesome. She's 97, still fucking awesome. Damn. I love her. We well, must protect her. Yeah, we must protect. <laughs> put, put her in a bunker with Betty White. Yes. Keep him safe. <laughs> just, just send in food. They'll be okay. Yeah. Um. But him and his mom moved to Libertyville, Illinois. That sounds fun. At age thirteen, he joined a band called Nebula, which covered artists like Led Zeppelin and Steve Miller Band. Everyone does that at thirteen. Um. In nineteen eighty-two, he purchased his first guitar. I forgot about this. And he formed a band called Electric Sheep. Yes, that is the best <laughs> band name we have ever heard on the show. I love it so much. So, you know, nothing this, will ever top that. Don't even try. And, you know, you can guess what it's about. Electric Politi sheep. Yeah, no, exactly. It's about sheep you plug in at night. Yeah. As like, night lights. No, it's about those Pokemon, Mareep. They're electric Mareep. sheep. <laughs> They're electric sheep. Crazy old Mareep. <laughs> we just derailed. But no, super politically charged music. Um, his guitar playing and songs during that time, that would really carry into rage. Like that was like the breeding ground for the really unique guitar playing style. Like he, I'm probably getting ahead of myself. But like the, he was influenced by a lot of rap groups like Run DMC and Public Enemy. And you can kind of hear that in his guitar playing um, for the song Bulls on Parade, which we'll talk about in a little bit more. That solo he has. What the fuck did you do? My hair tie is stuck in my hair. <laughs> Want Rody to come take care of it? No, I'm, I'll work on it. <laughs> okay, talking. you stay there. I'll keep going. Um but his guitar playing in Bulls on Parade and that solo is meant to mimic a DJ scratching. That's cool. Isn't that cool? Like, so his guitar playing has those elements of like 80s rap in there, which is really awesome. Um, his mom went on to teach history at Libertyville High School. 
not only was Morel in her class, which is embarrassing, um, but his classmate and bandmate of Electric Sheep was Adam Jones, and he would go on to play in Tool. What is happening in Libertyville, Illinois? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But that's that's rare. Like, not so much if you were, like, in California or New York or maybe Chicago. But in Illinois? Well, maybe they're by Chicago. Maybe it's not as rare as we think. Maybe. I don't know or where Or there's it is. just nothing else to do but learn an instrument and yeah. rage. That, that, that works, too. But while in high school, Morella was seen <laughs> as the only anarchist in the conservative high school. Good for him. And in high school, and to this day, he still identifies as a socialist. I think most of the band does. Who knows? I mean, probably if you listen to their songs, yeah. Their um, name is Rage Against the Machines. Yeah. So, we're so we shouldn't be surprised. Um, I'm also going to pull this next section out of wiki because it's just worded perfectly. Whoever goes for it, this, good for you. In the 1980 mock elections of Libertyville, he campaigned for a fictitious anarchist candidate named hubby maxwell who would come in fourth in the election he also wrote a piece headline south africa racist fascism that we support what <laughs> what he's writing this stuff in high school i this bro you know what i was doing in high school i was just still obsessing and writing fan fiction over harry potter dude, i was not this cool <laughs> we were all singing glee's version of journey in high school. That is unfortunately very painfully accurate. That's that's what we were doing. We were rehearsing that over and over again. We were until thinking we died. that we were Leah Michelle. We are right. not. Nowhere near it. <laughs> um, so anyway, he wrote that for the school's alternative, alternative newspaper, The Student Pulse. Okay. So Morello graduated in high school in 1982. And then he went to college. Guess where he went to college? I don't know. Harvard. That that is not what I would have guessed. No. Wait, wait. Tom Morello went to fucking Harvard. Yes, yes. And that's where this interesting dichotomy comes into place, um, because he went for as a political science major. Of course he did. Graduated in 1986 as a social studies major, but like he's went to Harvard and graduated. Like it's not like this fluke thing where he had this like realization after doing shrooms in college. Like man, holy shit, I'm part of the system. Like he. He literally graduated from there. I wish you all could see my face right now. Yeah, it's it's pretty I'm great. Thir- like my mind just short circuited. It gets it gets it gets better. Oh god. So then he moves to Los Angeles. And he's quoted with saying that when he moved out there, he was starving. He's honestly not really hireable, believe it or not. He's fresh out of college with a degree, not really doing anything. And he works as a stripper. Do what now? <laughs> Look, I'm not I'm not going to make fun of the dude because you have, you know, when you're starving. Yeah, you got to you got to do. You got to fucking do what you got to survive. But it's so interesting. Harvard he went to Harvard to male stripper. That is fascinating. There's a musical. There's a Broadway musical somewhere in there. And Tom someone Morello, the musical. Someone needs to just make it. Lynn, hey, Lynn, I found your next project. We are stuck inside with nothing to do. Someone write that. Yeah, it's pretty great. But you know what? Hey, do what you got to do to survive. I ain't going to criticize the dude for it. Sex work is real work. But somewhere in between being a stripper and being out in Los Angeles, I'm really not sure where this fits in the timeline, but it's somewhere around there. He worked for Senator Alan Cranston, which I think was a Democrat. Doesn't really matter. Um, But here's what he had to say about his time there. Quote, 
I never had any real desire to work in politics, but if there was any ember burning in me, it was extinguished working that job because of two things. One of them was the fact that 80% of the time I spent with a senator, he was on the phone asking rich people for money. It just made me understand the whole business was dirty. He had to compromise his, um, he had to compromise his entire being every single day. The other was the time a woman phoned up the office and wanted to complain that there were Mexicans moving into her neighborhood. I said to her, ma'am, you're a damn racist. <laughs> and while she was indigenous, um, I thought it was representing our cause well, but I got yelled at for a week by everyone for saying that. I thought to myself, if I'm in a job where I can't tell a damn racist, a damn racist, then it's not for me. He, he has a point. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. He has a point. We know Morello isn't going to be in politics anytime soon. So really? where is he going? Uh, to be in a band. Let's move on to Tim Cromerford. <laughs> okay. These next two dudes, there's really not much on them. So I'm going to apologize. There's probably more, but their wiki pages don't say anything. All my Google searches don't really say anything. So we're just going to go with it. Sorry, dudes. Um, Tim Comerford was born in Irvine, California on February 26, 1968. His father was an aerospace engineer who That's worked cool. on the space shuttle. And his mom was a mathematician and, mathematician and teacher. When he was in fifth grade, this is really sad, his mom was diagnosed with cancer. And then his dad divorced her shortly after. That's a dick move. No, it, uh, it totally is. And then... Tim moves in with his dad. His dad's abusive, piece of shit. You know, I don't really want to talk to him about him. Um, but it was around that time that Zach De La Roca introduced him to the bass guitar and really put an emphasis on channeling his anger through music and writing. And then sadly, his mom did pass away in like 1988. But still, like, don't divorce people when they're going through things like that. No. Don't be an asshole. Seriously. Okay. And then finally, there's drummer Brad Wilkes. Once again, not too much on this dude, but he was born in Portland, Oregon on September 5th, 1968. He learned to play the drums at the age of 13. His inspirations were John Bunham. Uh, he's from The Who, right? Right. Keith Moon? No, 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 no. No, John, no, no. No. John Bunham is from Led Zeppelin. That's Led. Yeah, I was like, the Keith name Moon. sounds familiar. It's because I saw Keith Moon next, so it threw me off. Keith Moon and Elvin Jones, who is a, I think, a jazz drummer. I'm not entirely sure. Um, he also has a spiritual connection with the number three. He has a tattooed on him. He puts it on his sets. Apparently he counts in threes. Just it's the number three really means a lot to him. Okay. Yeah. But there you go. Um, I really could dive more into the, like the first dudes, De La Roca and Morello, like into their entire lives in one episode, but. But it's already 7 p.m. We have another episode. To yeah. Yeah. We got to get going. <laughs> um, but you can already see those roots of like anarchy and non-compliance there. So how do they all meet? Um, There's this band called Lock Up that featured Morello on guitar. Um, they got pretty big. Like they had a record deal. <laughs> Their first album was called Something Bitchin' Comes This Way. Yes. As a playoff Ray Bradbury, Something Wicked Comes yes, This Way. Yes, that is, that is great. Um, they broke up around 1990. One of the members of that band, John Knox, met Tim and De La Roca and 
said, hey, you should play with Morello. And he's like, also this dude, Wilk, he like auditioned for our band and didn't make it. You should play with him too. And they started playing together. Um, they actually named themselves Rage Against the Machine. It came from an unreleased song title from De La Roca's previous band, Inside Out. So shortly after coming together as a band, um, they put out a 12-song demo cassette. The cover was made of newspaper clippings from the Sock Exchange. So we're already studying a good anarchist background. Feel that. Um, their first performance was at a quad at California State University, Northridge. From my understanding, after only being together for like six months, Epic Records, records approached them and just signed them so their debut album rage against the machine was released in 1992 on election day hell yeah <laughs> i love it and now we're in for a wild ride for the 90s so oh god here we go um so now that we've been recording these episodes for a while we often see like bands don't become big until after a couple of albums, but these dudes just blew up. They knew what they were doing. No, no. Everything they do, you have to keep in mind with this band. Everything they do is on purpose. It is intentional. Like other bands, they just let their recording people tell them what to do. These dudes in the contract from my memory basically like, no, we get creative control over everything. Which more people should have but yeah. that's irrelevant yeah but basically they were like no we're, we're taking control of it all good for them and they went triple platinum on their debut album which i would say is really rare from what we've seen um one of their most if not the most famous song killing in the name only has eight lines of lyrics but 17 instances of the word fuck most importantly, the line, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. Uh, but the song Killing in the Name of covers topics about institutional racism and police brutality. Uh, the band went on tour for some time to promote the album. And obviously, you knew that. I just really want to take this opportunity to tell you once again how cool Tom Morello's mom is. Literally, before they performed at what's called Pink Pop Festival. I want to go to that festival. Morello's mom I think she's like in her 60s at this 60s or 70s at this moment she comes on stage and introduces Rage Against Machine as the best band in the fucking universe I want her to be my mom she's done that like two or three times for Rage I love my mom but I want also her to be my mom yeah no I want two moms (laughs) is it bad that I went to go look her up one to see if we can get her on the podcast Hell but she yeah. had to ask her to be our like surrogate moms, like second moms. She could be our grandma. Well, yes, surrogate grandmas, but I can't find any contact information for no. her. So if you know her, <laughs> if someone out there, <laughs> please, I want to meet this lady. She's becoming an idol for me very quickly. Um, okay, moving on. In 1986, their second album, Evil Empire, comes out four years after their debut album. It was named after the phrase. Once again, very intentional with their naming. It was named after the phrase Ronald Reagan called the Soviet Union, but the band felt, hmm, that also can apply to the U.S. They're not wrong. I feel like the Reagan years was perfect punk content. It really was. Like, 
it's like everything Reagan said was like gold to them. Like, man, I can't wait to use this in my next song. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, but before the album's release, it was rumored they were breaking up. Hence, kind of like a four-year hiatus. More on this later. Okay. Uh, but the, the album goes triple platinum again. Um, I would also like to point out how huge it was that this album and their debut reached this, their status because they are a punk rap rock band talking about unsavorable topics in the 1990s of America. Like, this is really strange but really impressive at the same time. Mm-hmm. Like I kind of look in hindsight and I'm like, how did they get away with some of the lyrics they were talking about and still be like, I can see it in the underground, yeah. but on a, such a mainstream level. I can't fuck the police. Who are those? Uh, that's NWI. So that's like the same, same era. Yeah. Same era. Everyone's so, just like, fuck everybody. Yeah, dude, they were just done mm-hmm. after Reagan. I don't, I didn't live in the eighties, but Reagan did a number on some people that, there are many things that I admire about the 80s, fashion mainly, mm-hmm. music mainly. The 80s were fucked up, y'all. Yeah. No, they were for real <laughs> were. Um, the big hit off that album, Bulls on Parade, talks about U.S. and Mexico relations and how America was building a wall and creating hate against Mexico. I mean, um, yes. I think we're still there. Yes. Correct. Um, now, they were performing that song on SNL. The same night, Republican candidate, presidential candidate, Steve Forbes was making an appearance (laughs) and they were slotted for two songs, but it got Uh cut down to one Bulls on Parade as they attempted to put upside down flags on their amps. (laughs) (laughs) I just love it. They're like, hmm, let's have a mini protest. (laughs) And they just... Try Why to put, not? And like the flags got taken down and their set got cut, but you know what? It was worth it. A for effort. Um, also big hits off of the album were Tired Me, which won a Grammy for Best Metal Performance, and People of the Sun, as well as Bulls on Parade, which was nominated for Best Hard Rock Performance. I don't know why they're in two categories, but hey. I don't understand how genres work sometimes. More chance to win. Their third album, The Battle of Los Angeles, was released in 1999. It went double platinum and both Time and Rolling Stones consider it the best album of 1999. I listened to this whole album for the first time in a week. I mean, for the first time this week. And it is great. It is a great album. I also listened to their first album. I didn't get to listen to their second one. Stellar albums. Like, I can't believe. Well, actually looking at my upbringing, I'm not that surprised. (laughs) You you can't believe. But (laughs) but it is like insanely good. Like it aged well. Like I could hear someone writing that music today. There was like a, you know, whatever. I don't even know what what month it is. Whenever the riots started taking place, they saw Mm -hmm. like a huge surge in their Spotify. Oh, yeah. Because everyone's all angry again. Yeah. No, for real. Um, they had a few hits off of that. Calm Like a Bomb, Testify, Gorilla Radio, which was on the GOAT, Tony Tony Hawk Pro Skater 2. Um, Maybe they'll add it to the remaster that they're making. Oh, dude. I'm so excited for that. <laughs> I can't wait. And then there's a little song called Sleep Now and Fire, which is also a bomb. Bomb track. Sorry. I should rephrase that because I talk bomb. about bombs. Um, it's a great song. Um. And I want to spend more time on this song, more particularly for the music video. 
I love me a good weird music video. Ooh, listen, if I can give everyone homework, which I never do. This is your homework. But, but this is it. This is probably the only time I'm going to give you homework. Go watch that music video. Um, but here's the concept for it. The bros team up with Michael Moore of Fahrenheit 9-11 fame. This was before Fahrenheit 9-11, by the way. And they decided to perform outside the New York Stock Exchange on Wall Street. Okay. And Michael Moore got a proper permit to perform in front of Federal Hill National Memorial. But poor Michael did not get a permit to film the street or it gets him called a loud permit. Like loud, L-O-U-D permit. Um, I personally, after reading it, I'm like, yeah, like literally all of like legislative and judicial systems hate Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> like, I didn't even put this in here, but they like would have concerts and cops would like try to shut down the performance. Like NWA, if you watch Straight Outta Compton. Yeah. Oh yeah. The kind of that same feel. Um, but yeah, they did not like them. So they were in trouble, obviously, right? Because then fans are showing up too. Let's keep that in mind. Fans are going to just, anytime something is being filmed in New York City, Hey, what's that? Yeah. <laughs> like literally you, random people off the street. Yeah. Like you don't need to put out word. They don't have social media to put out the word it that people happen. are just going to show up. So Michael Moore tells them no matter what happens, keep filming. Smart man. So while the band is performing and they caught this on film for the music video, the band steps down from the memorial and Michael Moore is immediately apprehended by police and I think arrested. And Michael Moore then yells, take the New York Stock Exchange. <laughs> like it's like it's fucking Braveheart. <laughs> That's our next target. Don't let the British win. Yes. Like it's kind of insane. And but the band and hundreds of fans go make a beeline for the building. That's amazing. Um, they didn't get too far, obviously, because like there's Barricades. tons of yeah police. And then the riot doors immediately come down. And they closed the New York Stock Exchange for a day. That's hilarious. Dude, at the end of the music video, I'm going to give you guys a little spoiler on it. It says like at 2.52, like in text, as the riot doors are coming down, at 2.52, Rage Against the Machine shut down the New York Stock Exchange. Then it quips. No money was harmed. (laughs) (laughs) Dude. But wait, there's more. Oh, God. You already know this. Okay. I had to share it with you. I was going to ask if that was coming up. Around the one minute and three second mark, there is a sign that a gentleman is holding up on that sign. And I would like to remind the audience that this was filmed in 1999, 2000-ish, but the sign reads, Donald Trump for president. Which I fucking 2000. hate. I hate that it says that. The whole song is about greed, American greed. And that's in there. No, I do Ooh. not like it. That weirds Ooh, me out shakes more. Me. Than the Simpsons. Shook. like Oh, the Simpsons one. Yeah. That weirds me out more than that for some weird reason. This is a complete tangent. But did you see they have a whole prediction section for the Simpsons on Disney Plus? No. Yes, they do. They have a whole subcategory under Simpsons for prediction I'm episodes. I'm going to go find this. I don't even I've never watched an episode of the Simpsons in my life, but I'm going to go watch that. Dude, that is an interesting rabbit hole because I was talking to a friend about it. Because that's not the only time they've gotten it right. Oh, they've gotten it right a lot. And there is this writer on The Simpsons. Is he psychic? They have tried to interview him. I don't know what the full story is. So I'm probably going to. 
this is probably widely misconstrued so forgive me but it's good for entertainment like they cannot get a serious thing out of him like they think he's the creepiest person every time someone's come to interview him him? i don't know (laughs) i don't know is he a time traveler uh probably also speaking of time travel vox just posted an article that you should start taking ufos seriously and of course, UFOs oh, yeah. might mean, be time travel. That's one thing that 2020 has glossed over. They confirmed USO, U, USO. UFOs. UFOs are real. Yeah. Blink 182's Tom, I think his last name is Jones. Anyway, he has been begging Congress because he left the band to go start alien shit, like proving aliens are real. Wait, we need to, we need to cover them next. <laughs> that's a wild story. Yeah. But anyway, this is all a tangent. Basically, the message of this is Rage Against the Machine predicted Donald Trump yeah, as president. But that, that's the message. <laughs> And then, uh, like, I guess I do have to put in the caveat. I guess Trump was exploring becoming president then. So it makes sense. But still, it's weird. It's It's just weird weird that they're talking about money and greed. And there's this guy here. And then it came true. Then This is also weird. I thought it was worth pointing out. I'm probably just reading into it, most likely. But it's just weird how it sounds. So this is from Wiki. Sleep Now in the Fire made its live debut on September 11th, 1999 at the Oxford Zodiac in England. How do you feel when you read that sentence? Like, I do not like. How do you feel? Like, not only do you see September 11th, but the word Zodiac next to it. It feels weird. I don't know why, but someone in my intuition is saying, nope, nope, nope. She feels weird. Cruz is the Zodiac Killer. Pass it on. <laughs> Wait, what if that's what Rage Against the Machine's lyrics have been this entire time? That we, he's been trying to tell us. Dan Rook has been trying to tell us that he's a Zodiac Killer. It is possible. Anyway, yeah, I gotta move on. Hi, I'm John, an amateur musician and dad. And I'm Harrison, his younger brother and a recovering know-it-all. And we host a podcast called Play Disc. John is open-minded and well-versed in music theory and composition. And Harrison is extremely online and reflexively contrarian. Hey, I'm not reflexively contrarian. Who wrote this copy? Every other Tuesday, we host a discussion on a different full album showcasing our contrasting energies and our idiosyncrasies, like John tying everything back to the Beatles. Or Harrison insisting everything is a ska song. Play Disc is available anywhere you get podcasts from. New episodes every other Tuesday. Catch, Catch you, you on, on the, the B-side. B-side. What's up, people? My name is Sean, and I'm the host of You're Not Listening, a podcast where we teach you how to actively listen to music one song at a time. Every episode, I sit down with my father, who was a mobile DJ for over 35 years, and we each bring a song to the table and talk about what makes it great, why you should listen to it, and why you should appreciate it through detailed analysis of the words and music, some personal stories that we might have with that, and hopefully will help you change your mind and get you listening to music in a little bit different way so you get a little bit more out of it. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen. If you love music and you want to figure out how you can love it even more, maybe even learn how to appreciate a song that you think you hate, it's You're Not Listening, a music podcast. Check it out. Thanks, everyone. Um, after a year of the release of their third album, uh, October 2000, Zach De La Roca leaves the band. And there's some events that happened beforehand. I'm actually savoring for another section, so it's going to make more sense. But also worth noting, the band fights a lot. 
I can see that. Hence why I think it took four years. Because usually it's like two. Mm-hmm. Usually that's the turnaround. But it took them four years. Um, But yeah. Like they would fight. I read a quote. They would fight over like what color their shirt should be. Like fist fights. <laughs> Boys. Fist fights. Um, but they were like in their mid-20s. It happens. So they had a fourth album technically that was released in December. I think De La Roca was on it because he was still in the band when they were recording it. It's mostly covers. I'm not really going to talk about it. There's That's more important boring. things to talk about. They also did a live album. They also did a documentary. Like I said, other things I got to move on to here um, that I wish I could devote more time to. But the remaining band members shortly after De La Roca left went and joined up with Chris Cornell of Soundgarden fame um, and formed Audio Slave, which is like really nostalgic for me because I still remember, I don't know why this is a memory in my head, but I remember watching their first music video on like Fuse or MTV or something like uh-huh. that. I just have this memory of their first single and watching that music video. And I remember Tim Comerford's tattoos because like he has these like big, like they're just black full tattoos like from quarter inch sleeve area to like his chest i don't know that's just one of my memories interesting that's embedded there um so you know like i said i gotta breeze through some of this apologize about it because i really want to get to an important section here Um, but audio slave does break up for a few after a few albums rage kind of comes you know de la roca comes back into the picture they do a couple reunion shows and tours here and there uh, they were slotted for a tour in 2020, but it has been postponed to COVID. Thanks, COVID. It actually works out because now I, after I've done all this research on their music, I really want to go see them in 2021. So you know what? I'll take it. But here's what I wanted to get to. In the 90s, this group was seen as revolutionary and radical. As one senator called them, they are anti-family and pro-terrorist. But... <laughs> I think a little harsh, but okay. Um, But today, some of their fans think they're sellouts. So I want to present some evidence here. Not saying they're on trial or anything, but we got to talk. We got to shoot the shit. We got to talk facts. Um, And I also got to thank YouTuber Punk Rock NBA, who is just awesome. He's a dude who covers like hardcore metal rock. He's so good. He does such good research. Highly recommend him. Um, but he did a video about rage being sellouts, like kind of presenting the case. So good chunk of this information kind of came from his research. So thank you. But some have accused rage about using socialism and communism as a parlor trick to sell albums. The first indictment against them is while preaching the corruption behind capitalism, they were and probably are making millions. Oh, they definitely are. Yeah. I mean, after, like I said, (laughs) they're on Spotify. Yeah. They have a lot of plays. Um, But during the 90s, they were selling a ton of records, performing on corporate-owned networks such as MTV, owned by Viacom, NBC, which is owned by General Electric. And they were enjoying the pleasures that they... I put this word in. I knew I wasn't going to be able to say it. The Hemingly? V-E-A-T-M-E-N-T-L-Y. Help me. I need to see it. Vehemently? Where are we? Vehemently. 
Vehemently? Vehemently. Is that how it's always been said? I'm pretty sure. Hold on. Hold on. Pause. We're going to ask the Google lady who pronounces things. Vehemently. That's how I've always said it. I actually. I rehearsed that word. Vehemently. 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 I literally rehearsed that word because I knew it was going to fuck me up. And then the time came. Vehemently. And it did. So there you go. That word. I'm not going to try again. Okay. Vehemently. Vehemently. So join the pleasure is a vehemently preached against. Another criticism, criticism I have seen, and we talked a little bit about this in the car, is their recent ticket prices. Because their upcoming tour, the cheapest tickets go for 125 And like you pointed out, someone who has been to a lot of concerts. That's pretty normal. Yeah, that's not bad. Also... I don't know how much of that is them and how much is, as my friend likes to say, ticket bastard. (laughs) Well, Uh, apparently they set this price is what I've heard. And they claim it's due to scalpers. I'm not really entirely sure how because I don't really go to those big uh, like arena concerts that much. Oh, there are. When we saw Queen at one of the auditoriums they're playing at. They're literally, I'm not even kidding, like four guys standing outside and trying to scalp you tickets. Yeah, I'm sure they are. But like, I'm not sure how that price point comes into play with scalpers. There's a reason. Someone smarter than me with those. Ticketmaster will still charge you $87 in fees. So it doesn't matter. Oh yeah, it doesn't matter. Um, But I've also seen, like this is enraged, like the true rage fans. um, Because I've seen articles saying rage against the machine becomes the machine because of this. Because of this. Um, So people are pissed. Now, despite these indictments, here's my position. After reviewing both sides. No, and shut the fuck up. Because I don't agree with everything Rage stands for. Like, they got some communism stuff. I don't particularly agree with at all, obviously. But keep in mind that no one was talking about these social humanitarian issues like they were on stage. Yeah. Um, Sleep Now in a Fire is oddly and eerily foreshadowing Occupy Wall Street in 2011. Like, it's kind of weird. Like, when you watch the music video and you kind of see the footage, you're like, oh, crap, that actually kind of happens later on. We lived that. Yeah. It's really strange. And then, along with all the other rap groups during the time, so I don't want to sound like Only Rage did this because I didn't, but they were speaking about Black Lives Matter. In particular, the song, The Voice of the Voiceless, was about a journalist named Mumia Abu-Jamal, who was on death row for killing a cop who was in a fight with his younger brother. Um, but then it changed to life imprisonment without parole. Many believe he's innocent. YouTuber Punk Rock NBA in his Rage video talks about how they were talking about like Columbus Day being genocide in the 90s. No one was talking about that. They were that. woke. Meanwhile, we were in elementary school learning that yeah, he yeah. was a friend to the Indians. No, exactly. Like, we are just now in 2020 taking down statues of Christopher Columbus. As we should. Like, 25 years later, or however many. Um, in addition to those platforms, they criticized American Greed, called out both Republican and Democrats. They called out slavery, colonialism, and quite frankly, the genocide of Native Americans that's on United States hands. Like, mm-hmm. they just called it out. No one was talking about this. Nope. They're also big donators 
to their beliefs. Like they definitely put their money where their mouth is. That's good. Um, and it's not like, you know, how some bands are like, they'll like contribute to AIDS and that's all good. Yeah. But you know, it's like, there's a definitely a publicity. Don't, there's publicity involved with it, folks. Yes. You wouldn't know about it if they didn't want you to yeah. know about it. No, it, it is. But hey, if they use their platform for good. Nothing wrong with it. Um, but while these, while they were performing or touring with you two, I mean, what a pairing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, all of Rage profits for that tour went to two organizations, like all of their profits. Good for them. Um, went to Union of Needle Trades, Industrial and Textile Employees that they donated to Zapatista Front of for National Libertarian, which is a militant group aligned with libertarian socialist ideals. And I guess they like control the southernmost part of Mexico. Interesting. Yeah. Um, but their up and coming tour, the one that's in 2021, this is actually really cool. They reserved 10% of their seats and 100% of those funds are going to go to charity. Aww. So like, I don't think these dudes are sellouts. Look at their history. Like two of them literally have revolutionary yeah. blood running through them. And I really think they're totally genuine and they're bringing their message on their platforms mm -hmm. that oppose everything they believe. Like they're bringing it to corporate America. Corporate America is literally paying them to say, fuck you this is right true. back to them. Like that's insane. So, you know what? Good for them. Um, and everyone's human. So if they did tell, who cares? That's fine. They need money to survive. Who cares? Uh, but now we're at the closing. And I've titled this section Legacy Slash Limp Biscuit. Yeah. I warned you we were going to end here. <laughs> so despite their ideals, what is the legacy of this band? On one side, I like to believe their artistry helped launch more protest artists. And I'm thinking Run the Jewels, Rise Again, Scar Lord, really the majority of the hardcore scene. Um so in general, while politics was in music in the 60s and 70s, I think what these dudes really bring is the energy and the aggressiveness mm -hmm. behind the need for change. Um, in an article I was reading, Quest Love from The Roots says, we need a new De La Roca. And I think we're just starting to see that. Uh, but just the music that's coming out and like the artistry, we're now seeing yeah. like a bunch of mini De La Rocas coming up. But there are consequences to their ascent. Oh, no new metal so i'm sorry if you like the genre i know we say like what you like and that is true but i just have to poke fun at the genre because you guys gave us limp biscuit <laughs> and that's a problem <laughs> that is really a problem um but in an article i was reading from vulture i think um they talked about one of the pain points for the band was the creation of this genre uh, mainly the audience and message that comes along with it. It's likely that in, it's not really likely, I think it's fact, but in their audience, there's a lot of white male suburban audiences resonating with the fuck you message, right? Because they don't like what their mom said to do something. Yeah. Like it's not because of what the message actually is. They're not being systemically oppressed. They're just, they just like, don't want to be told what to do. And they like, Oh yeah, finally someone fucking understands me. Right? Yeah. No, that's not what it's about. Um, but that demographic was way more interested in swinging their arms to the abrasive sounds than listening to lyrics. And 
that crowd shifted to new metal, a genre that doesn't really talk about anything of significant importance at all. Um, <laughs> They're just out there vibing. Yeah, not even vibing, but it's like, have you listened to corn? That's not vibe music. <laughs> That's their vibe, okay? <laughs> but like, it's just, yeah. So with the birth of new metal, it led way to artists such as corn, Limp Biscuit, Static X. If you like them, go for it. But all I'm saying, it's a bit of a disappointment to see their ideologies, like whether you agree with them or not, like just the humanitarian issues that they're talking about, fall on deaf ears or worse, get twisted to fit some fans' selfishness and privilege. Kind of what we were talking about earlier. As I was fucking writing this, I was like, shit. Like people like anti-maskers can just take their lyrics easily yep. and put it towards them. Like, oh, the fucking government fucking liberals telling me, tell me what to do yeah, you know put on my mask fuck you you know like but like that's the sad thing is no one okay we're going on a little bit of tangent it's gonna take 30 seconds but no one really dives into the lyrics and really finds the true sustenance of meeting mm-hmm. and i think that's why we started this podcast leah let's get down to the bones of why these songs were written stay woke yeah anyway in conclusion in an interview the bassist Tom Comerford says, quote, I really do apologize for Limp Biscuit." Oh, no. <laughs> he says, I feel really bad that we inspired such bullshit. Oh, no. And I, I want to just go back to a flashback. This is in 2000, like a month before Zach De La Roca left uh, to the MTV Music Awards where Rage Against the Machine, their video sleeping sleep down the fire lost to limp biscuits i think it was break something or whatever it's called and tim comerford lost it and ran the stage and went up into the scaffolding and refused to come down (laughs) (laughs) you know what tim same i too would do the same if i lost a limp biscuit that's amazing (laughs) so there you go that was it that was a long one that was a long one like when i wrote just the um like just like the stories about these dudes i was like oh that could be i was five pages in and then you're like i should probably talk about something else yeah i should probably move on but i could have just kept going they're fascinating dudes that's that's the problem with this podcast we are only limited to a oh small window zach de la roca that dude collab makes some of the best collaborations ever ever he's been with run the jewels he's there's just so many there's so many artists he's collaborated with um but anyway what we do we don't have a beer we don't have a beer but we do have something different today we in our morning for the tacos we went to taco bell for one last one last time and they currently have a pineapple whip freeze that is but Chef's they have a kiss. pineapple freeze and they have a pineapple freeze with cream. Yeah, you gotta get the cream one. It's the pineapple whip freeze, not just the pineapple freeze. Mm-hmm. That one's just like your any regular slushy, icy thing. That's that's the plebes. Yes. The plebes freeze. You pay that extra 10 cents and get the cream added to it. Your taste buds will thank you. Wait, are we now like sponsoring corporate America? This is wrong. No. <laughs> We're just mourning the <laughs> fucking new CEO of Taco Bell. Shh. Oh we're raging against taco bell we are raging against taco bell they right. they get points for the, the pineapple whip freeze but they lose 
many more points for getting rid of the potato taco. And all potato products. And also not having Doritos Locos tacos in stock tonight. DLTs. DLTs. As 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 we learned he go, what it's called. The, the cashier goes to Bethany and goes, Do you order the DLTs? And we just stared at it. You serve bacon, lettuce, tomatoes now, sir? No one told we were me. like BLTs? No, DLTs. What's a Oh, Doritos Locos Tacos. (laughs) So now you know. Yeah, now you know. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify. You know where to find us by now. Uh, We'd love it if you'd leave us a review. It's been a very long time since we've done an episode. Sorry, Sorry for that. Uh, a pandemic happened and kind of quarantined me for two weeks. So. But it's been even longer since we got a review. Like our last review was in February. So please yeah. leave us a review. Uh, a special thanks to Josh Tarpley for our intro riff. You can follow us on social media now that we're alive again. We're on Facebook or on Instagram at She Will Rock You Podcast. We're on Twitter at She Will Rock the Letter U Pod. You can follow us individually on Instagram at Beth Ann Tarpley at leelizabeth.j we want to hear from you do you rage against the machine are you angry at corporate america do you have a suggestion for a future episode we'd love to hear it you can send that to she will rock you podcast at gmail.com and as always don't do drugs don't be a straight edge don't be a straight edge all right well don't do drugs don't do drugs do that part you may drink it in moderation sometimes just don't drive don't drive But don't do drugs. Don't do drugs.